From 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Marnie Munoz. You're listening to the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, we take a closer look at the past, present, and future of Interstate 81 in Syracuse. Why a new diversification fund isn't the end-all be-all for some SU faculty members. And how students are keeping Greek life hype despite a virtual recruitment season. It's Tuesday, March 2nd, 2021. I-81 is a massive highway that splits straight through Syracuse. It is raised up in a lot of places. It's crazy busy. There's cars on it all the time. And it's essentially something that you can see when you're coming into Syracuse. It's something that you go on when you leave Syracuse. From the university, you can see it. From a lot of different neighborhoods, you can see it. I think you can probably even see it from downtown. It's essentially just this massive, almost like a landmark in the city. And it's just this huge highway that thousands of people go back and forth on every day. My name is Maggie Hicks, and I am the assistant news editor at The Daily Orange. What recent decisions have been made about its future in Syracuse? Back in 2019, the New York State Department of Transportation announced that they were going to tear down the highway and turn it into a community grid. The highway was deteriorating. It was old. It was just not in good shape. And so the Department of Transportation decided that it would take the raised part of the highway down, which is called the viaduct, and turn it into a grid of surface-level streets. And so they're currently waiting on the environmental review of the project, but Governor Andrew Cuomo recently said that they were going to break ground on the project in 2022. When you say community grid, I think futuristic infrastructure and the movie Tron, but what can people in Syracuse realistically expect when the viaduct eventually is replaced with that grid. What sort of city will we look like then? It will likely look a little bit less industrial. You're not going to have this big structure like ripping through the middle of town. And the grid is going to be more, like I said, like surface level streets that are going different ways in the area. And the traffic patterns ideally will make more sense and it'll be easier to get around. But yeah, just mostly like less industrial, not as big of a highway in the middle of town. What has the city's conversation about I-81 been like in the past? And what does it sound like today? And also, whose voices are part of that discussion? For the most part, the city has been focusing on the fact that the highway is old and it's poorly built. Those are the words that Andrew Cuomo used in his State of the State address. And the conversations have been centered around mainly just like what to do with that area and how to handle it. And that has been coming mostly from the state and mostly from city officials. But part of the conversation has been centered around how to do construction on the highway in a way that will not affect the surrounding community. However, 
only portions of the conversation have included voices of actual community members. A lot of the times it's city officials talking about what's best for that community and people in power talking about what's best for that community. I think a lot of organizations in the area, especially Blueprint 15, have been trying to center the conversation more around what community members want, because in the past, a lot of the conversation has been centered just around the greater city and the people in charge in that city have been having that conversation. And you spoke with different Syracuse residents across different city districts, and I'm curious about the response to the community grid plan, because this plan has been up for proposal and even advocated within the city for 10 years now. And the viaduct itself is 55 years old, but not everyone you heard from is confident in this new replacement grid. Why is that? A lot of residents that live by I-81 are happy to see the viaduct come down. It's something that's been in their backyard raging with noise for years. Even talking to Lanessa Owens Chaplin, who is part of the NYCLU, she said that she would go into people's houses and she could just hear the noise from the highway just from their front door. So it's something that's been a part of their lives for years. But they're also concerned because the construction of this viaduct has created a numerous amount of problems for everybody living in that area. And that was because the city didn't take into account the fact that there were thousands of people living down there. What they're gonna put in play after they take the highway down, the pollution that's gonna come from the highway, the traffic that's gonna come from them taking the highway down, on our streets. When the viaduct was initially constructed, 1,300 families were displaced and they had to move to a small community right next to the highway, which is what caused all the noise pollution, which is what caused all the air pollution for them. And now residents are worried that the same thing could happen again, but on a much longer scale, on a much slower pace. Who is it going to benefit? Is it going to benefit the whole the city? Or is it going to just benefit the surroundings like Syracuse University, Destiny USA, and those guys? What's the beneficial part that's going to come back to this community? Because when they put it up, my mother was displaced. So while they're excited about the prospect of not having a raging highway in their backyard, they're really concerned about what the aftermath might look like and about the city not taking into account their lives or any of their concerns. What specific interactions between SU and the city have most recently caused this mistrust to take further root? The SU steam plant, which is built up on the corner of McBride and Taylor Street, has been there for years, but it has, for years, caused a lot of air pollution in that area, and it's caused a lot of issues within the community, similar to the pollution from the viaduct. And so that steam plant powers the university, it powers Upstate University Hospital, it powers SUNY ESF. So it provides power to everybody up here on the hill, but it provides a lot of issues and a lot of pollution to people who live at the bottom of the hill. And the university hasn't really done much to heal that wound. They offer a scholarship to residents who are living in the South Side neighborhood below the viaduct, kind of as like a, sorry that we polluted your area, here's some money. But that's been about it. And a lot of residents were really angered by that because it really just did feel like putting a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. And so that has really soured the relationship between the university and the community just because it it's, again, it makes them feel like they aren't human. It makes them feel like they're just this group of people that the university is stepping on and isn't really doing anything to help. And so... That has been one factor that has really soured that relationship and made them 
distrust the university because they know that the university has done things like that in the past and they're worried that they might come in and do the same thing with the leftover land. After all that's happened, what can SU do to help heal its relationship with the Syracuse community? I think that people living by the viaduct are just looking to be recognized as people and looking for the feeling of being human. For a long time, they've been treated as if they just aren't. You take houses from a community, then you build a highway, and you pollute and cause health issues for other human beings. That's extremely alarming. So I think Syracuse needs to recognize that, and they need to see that that's a community living down there, and the fact that our university is up on this hill has some real effects on that community. And so to start, don't develop on the land don't try to take the land. NYCLU is working right now to have the eight acres of the land put into a trust for that community. So don't jeopardize that land trust. Don't jeopardize the land for the people there. And then eventually try to build a relationship with that community and try to do things that will actually help the people living in that community. We're asking for a hand up. We're asking for true justice to be in place, true fairness to be in place, and to be viewed as human beings. This university is full of incredibly talented, incredibly smart people, and that power can be used for good or it can be used for evil. So the university should be using it for good by putting that talent and putting that intelligence into the community, helping them out, making sure that they build back better with the land that they're given, and just ensuring that they're not doing things that'll harm the people living down there and recognizing that they're human and that they're a community and that we are here as visitors. We are here, we are not the people who have to permanently live here. Maggie Hicks is an assistant news editor for The Daily Orange. You can read and follow updates to her story, Reliving History, Residents Fear I-81 Project Could Displace Communities at The Daily Orange website. Maggie, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. So at the January 27th University Senate meeting, Chancellor Ken Siverud mentioned this 40 to $70 million faculty diversification fund, he called it. And it was intended to create new diversity faculty hires, but not just hire new faculty, but also, and this is kind of like a direct quote, he said he wants to create a new culture that will make faculty of marginalized backgrounds want to live and work in Syracuse and spend their whole careers here. So it's more about retaining faculty than it is just hiring them. I am Sarah Alessandrini. I'm an assistant news editor at The Daily Orange. The objective of this fund seems relatively straightforward, but what would spending those funds look like once the ball gets rolling? So where would the funds go? And in that execution, what did the SU faculty you spoke with say was missing? So the SU faculty that I spoke with said, the thing that's missing is the quality of life in Syracuse. It's one thing to recruit us there. The name of Syracuse University has a lot of weight. And yet at the same time, when you get there, the practical realities of working in Syracuse as a black person specifically becomes very, and a black academic more specifically, becomes very difficult to maintain because more often than not, our partners do not work in academia, which means that they have to try to find jobs in a place where there aren't any jobs available. Syracuse, the city itself, it isn't a great place for people of color to live. And a lot of them have a hard time when they 
come here, their partners can't find work, or it's very difficult for them to have families here. And that's the reason that a lot of faculty try to find employment elsewhere and wind up not staying too long. So really, it would be more beneficial for the university to try to help faculty of color make a better life for themselves in Syracuse and also on campus too because there is a kind of a toxic culture of this is a majority white campus, majority white faculty. There's a lot that the university needs to do to help make sure that faculty feel welcome here and it's not just, it's more about just hiring them and bringing them here. They have to make sure that they want to be here and that they want to stay. Right, because hiring opportunities in higher academia are both notoriously non-diverse and hard to find. I mean, I've heard of professors who've jumped hoops to go through really rigorous interview processes and then they don't get the job. I've also heard stories of black professors and other professors of color who just, who they go through all of that interviewing and then ultimately they find they can't accept an offer from the school because of an unwelcoming or racist experience just in the application process. What else did SU faculty members tell you about the working environment that they've encountered here on campus? Well, uh, Professor Biko Gray, who was one of the faculty I interviewed, he said that he's had students even come up to him and say, you're the first black professor that we've had in our four years here. He's been here for four years. He knows two colleagues of his that or both happen to be black and they both found employment elsewhere because they just found it very difficult to have families here and to just make a living for themselves in Syracuse with their partners. Same thing with Sharice Slippery, the other professor I interviewed. She said she knew two, two good friends of hers who were women of color who worked here. They both found employment elsewhere because they just felt pushed out. They didn't feel welcome here. It's not to say that they were literally pushed out, but they just didn't feel like they were welcomed by either other faculty or even other students. Dr. LaPree, she had said to me too. I think it also involves community investment, especially because SU is so, is a predominantly white institution. So as somebody as a faculty of color, you know, I was trying to engage with the community and the disconnect between the campus and the community is dark and it's painful. And living in, in a community that was majority people of color, just hearing my colleagues dismissive things about like where my apartment was it was really jarring to me it was like you know just hearing things and from the students too like oh downtown is ghetto it's sketchy oh my god how can you live on the other side of the track like there's a lot there around class disparities that unfortunately overlap with racial disparities that I think the university as a whole is somewhat distanced from. And I know Professor Gray mentioned the idea that Syracuse isn't a great city to live in in general for Black people. Why is that? So there's actually a statistic that he pulled up, and I went and found the statistic as well, that Syracuse is like the 11th worst city for Black residents to live. And it's just based on the racial disparities in income, education, health, incarceration. It's just all these different factors that create this culture where it's not a great city for black people to live and it's just predominantly white and there is just this divide where black people are at a disadvantage they're low income it's not like a very welcoming environment so it's not just Syracuse's campus it's off campus as well it's in the city and even Sharice LaPree had mentioned to me too you know Syracuse is a city but it has a small town vibe it's like everyone knows each other and if you're a person of color you don't feel you don't feel particularly welcome and then if you come in from outside the city into the community, 
even though there is a community of people of color, they're very tight-knit as well. So it's just very difficult to come in as an outsider overall. Right. And I know Chancellor Sivrud announced the new fund at the end of January, but a few weeks later, he also announced that he would have a broader university-wide plan to improve SU's diversity and inclusion. While he was talking about that plan, he said that the United States was going through a reckoning with anti-Black racism and with anti-Semitism. And I'm curious, when you spoke with SU faculty members of color, how much of an emphasis did they place on 2020's events and experiences when they were talking about the changes they'd like to see at SU? Honestly, not so much not so much emphasis on the events of 2020, because really this is something that's been going on for a long time. 2020 really just brought it more to light. But these are events that Black faculty, faculty of color, any marginalized group, they've this is their life. Like They've been experiencing this for a long time. This isn't a new thing. Racism didn't just come into existence in 2020. It really just brought it to light. But Biko Gray had told me that after the Breonna Taylor decision came out, he received hateful, racist, terrible, nasty emails the next day. And so I think that some of these events really did just almost make the culture more toxic. The tensions have been high. And so it's good that the university is acknowledging that the nation is undergoing this reckoning. But really, this is something that's kind of been a long time coming. And it doesn't stop at Syracuse. It is on a local level. But it's here that we need to be making changes. If the university really cares about their faculty, then then they'll be making steps to change that and try to make their own faculty more welcoming. You know, really, really take steps to not tolerate this hateful, this prejudiced environment that is being created, this toxic culture. Beyond a renewable multi-million dollar fund initiative like this, what actions could SU take to even further encourage and even accommodate people of color who are interested in coming to Syracuse for a faculty position? Well, this multi-million is Right now, it's being committed towards hiring, according to the university. That's really all they have set in stone is that they want to use this money to hire more diverse faculty. But in the faculty that I spoke with, the money can go towards and should go towards more than just hiring. If the chancellor wants to be a leader on this, then he's going to have to work really, really, really hard to make sure that we become a leader in not what we call social justice or racial justice, but in the ethical realities of human difference and, the, and, and moving people forward to be ethical leaders in their respective fields as it relates to human difference. So I just think that when we talk about money, it's not just about throwing money at faculty, it's about creating a space where they, where they can survive and thrive both as scholars and as people promoting research, providing better quality of life. So what could that look like? That could look like trying to help faculty's partners find jobs in the city, even though they're not really heavily available, try to help them find work in the city so they can live in the city, better childcare options for their children, because a lot of these faculty are young and they want to start families. And if you want them to start their careers here, then that's what needs to happen. So saying you're going to commit multi-million dollars is a step, but it's not necessarily enough if you're only going to be putting it towards hiring new faculty and creating new positions. And also just like I had mentioned before, really pushing faculty, current faculty, white faculty to just do better. Simply, that's as simple as that, to learn and unlearn and really just create a more welcoming environment and say that as a university, we're not going to tolerate people 
pushing other people out of the university, if that makes sense. We want to make it a more inclusive environment for everyone and really promote this equity. Sarah Alessandrini is an assistant news editor for The Daily Orange. You can read and follow updates to her story on the new Faculty Diversification Fund at dailyorange.com. Sarah, thanks for stopping by. Of course, thanks for having me. Before the pandemic, Greek life recruitment included a lot of in-person events, and it usually would take place over a couple of weeks. And a lot of fraternity and sorority members during that process would travel from fraternity or sorority house to house and meet all the members of those houses and get to see the physical houses as well. I'm Mandy Cranach, and I'm a senior staff writer at The Daily Orange. And so with the pandemic, a lot of that in-person group bonding and getting to know each other isn't all that doable. So how did individual houses organize and host more COVID-friendly recruitment events this year? So recruitment was fully virtual this year, and a lot of Greek organizations used tools like Zoom Q&A panels, also breakout rooms, and online games to get to know the potential new members and to conduct recruitment in a different way. Greek life is really big among SU students here, and it's very much a part of the student culture. It's very visible, especially to incoming students. And so on the other side of this experience, what was rushing like for prospective Greek students this year? Rushing looked a lot different for prospective Greek members. A lot of students were nervous because they knew it would be a lot different than what it has been in the past. And they thought with the Zoom format, it's a little bit harder to present yourself, and it seemed less of a casual process to some of the students. But they also said that the Greek organizations did try to make it be as normal as possible, even though it was a lot different. When you talk about doing things over Zoom, can you talk about the process of how house leaders sort of came up with that idea, how they organized that to make it happen? In planning virtual recruitment, a lot of house leaders thought about ways they could transfer some of the activities that were typical of recruitment into a virtual format. So some of these were online games, and one fraternity leader, Sal Pepe of Delta Sigma Pi, he's a senior vice president, he tried to learn as much about Zoom as he possibly could by watching YouTube videos and learning about all the features of the Zoom platform. And then he was also constantly like texting in a group chat to see if people would be able to join a Zoom call to like play around with the features. So college life in general is very different today than it was a year ago. And we've definitely seen a sort of cultural shift around everything from physical closeness to hygiene to making new friends. And in your conversations with people in Greek life at SU, what kinds of pandemic growth and hopes did they share with you? The... Greek members that I talked to said that they hoped that the traditions and the communities that they have in these organizations will be able to continue even with the challenges that they're experiencing right now, as well as after the pandemic, too. Right. So are you saying that they're sort of hoping for a return to normal? Yes, they are. They're hoping to return to normal. 
and they're hoping for some in-person recruitment soon, but also carrying on the traditions even for the time being. Mandy Cranach is a senior staff writer for The Daily Orange. You can read and follow updates to her story, How Greek Life's Virtual Recruitment Panned Out This Year, at dailyorange.com. Mandy, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. A special thank you to Maggie Hicks, Sarah Alessandrini, and Mandy Cranach. Thanks executive producer Adam Garrity and podcast editor Mariah Humiston. And to our producers, Abby Fritz, Kylie Herlihy, and Catherine Ito. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday.